Hey, good morning. Good morning. You know, ha- well, you guys are energetic this morning. And Happy New Year. You know, I, I was actually, I'm actually kind of shocked that there's so many of us here. Yeah, wasn't that a beautiful baby? Her grandparents, his grandparents must be beautiful. So. <laughs> wow. I can amen that, I guess. Um, I was kind of half expecting this service to be like largely empty this morning. And so I don't know if that means that, that all of us that are here are just boring or if we're dedicated. So I'm hoping it's the latter. Oh, okay. Okay, there you go. That's why you're here? Eric told, me, Eric told me this morning that it was kind of weird that there were so many people here, too. And, um, and he said, well, maybe it's everybody's New Year's resolution that they're going to be more regular at, at church. And he says, we'll know for sure if it is. If the place is empty tomorrow, I mean, empty next week, we'll know that it was a New Year's resolution. So uh, anyway, but uh, that, that should have been more funny, that whole New Year's resolution thing Eric came up with. Yeah, it was funnier when you said it. You know, for, I mean, I have to be honest, like I am not a New Year's resolution sort of guy. Um, but I do think, Brian talked about it uh, as he was opening the service. I do think like God gives us a gift in these like rhythms that we have of like years and months and birthdays and these kind of annual celebrations that I think if we're wise, it, it, it serves us well to like take a step and reflect on the past year like look forward with anticipation about what we would like to see God accomplish in the coming year and order our lives around the things that really matter. Whether or not you want to call that a resolution, I don't, I don't do the New Year's resolution thing because I think as I, I, you know, I think those of you know that know me well know this about me. Like I think at times I just can like struggle with like, you look around at the brokenness of this world, at the like brokenness of our own hearts of like the breakdown of like everything that's good and right and true it seems like and it's like why even bother right because if you make a resolution you know you'll just end up disappointing yourself or end up being disappointed if you have hopes for the future anybody like me in there in here there's a few of you right You know, the reality is, though, is I do think it's important for us to think about what's really important. And this morning, as we're going to be finishing up our last of our kind of our Advent series, this isn't officially an Advent sermon, it's a post-Advent sermon. Um, It's in Isaiah chapter 59 and 60. So if you have a Bible, turn turn into Isaiah 59 and 60. And, you know, over the course of Advent, we've been looking at passages that talk about this theme of darkness and light and how darkness has fallen over this world, and yet how in Jesus Christ, like, God is restoring light. And, you know, and the darkness kind of represents all that is wrong with humanity and this world and with our culture and with ourselves and even with that thing that resides in our own hearts. And in Isaiah 59 and 60, we're actually going to look at, at something that God has resolved to do. It's his resolution And I think it's important for us to look at that because as we understand what God is doing in this world and as we understand what he's resolved to do, if we're people that truly believe his word and and trust in his character, um, we'll be people who order our lives under what God is doing in this world and and use that as as a compass, so to speak, to keep us from just being led astray by all the things that want to distract us. So as we kind of close off this Advent, Christmas, New Year's season, you know, we'll be ending here in Isaiah 59, 9 through Isaiah 60, verse 6. 
And our text is really going to break out into three main sections this morning. The first one is we're going to see this description of the nation of Israel, how darkness had taken over. So I've entitled it appropriately, Darkness Takes Over. Uh, second point is that the, uh, we're going to see the Lord get dressed. He notices what's going on and he actually gets dressed. And it's important to how it's described of what the Lord wears. And then we're going to see at the very last verse of chapter 59 and into chapter 60. Um, verse 6, we're going to see how everything changes because of what the Lord does. So why don't you stand with me? I'm going to read just verses 9 through 11 to start us off, and we'll read the rest of the text as, as we get into the text. But this is God's word for his church, and, and uh, I trust that he's going to use it to build us up the, this morning. Isaiah 59, verse 9. Therefore, justice is far from us, and righteousness... De- Does not overtake us. We hope for light, but behold darkness. For brightness, but we walk in gloom. We grope along the wall like blind men. We grope like those who have no eyes. We stumble at midday in the twilight. Among those who are vigorous, we are like dead men. All of us growl like bears. We moan sadly like doves. We hope for justice, but there is none. For salvation, but it is far from us. Let's pray. Father, I just thank you for um, the light of Jesus Christ, how he is the true light that comes into the world and enlightens every person. And Father, I just ask that you would allow me to proclaim him and, and lift him up high this morning as we, as we look at the brokenness of this world and the greatness of your son. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, as we open here, there, there's this pretty bleak description of of the, the fate of the nation of Israel. And I, this shouldn't be any surprise to us, but the people of God throughout history are no strangers to difficult and dark times, right? Like we know this. If you read the Bible, you know that actually the Bible is a story of, of God's people encountering difficult times again and again and again, and God proving himself to be faithful through those difficult times. So if you're here this morning and you're kind of like me and you're kind of like the cynic and you look around and you're just, and you're like, man, this is a bummer. You know, it's not a surprise to God, and we're going to see that as we go through this text. And, and we see that, this, that darkness had taken over the nation of Israel. They live in a dark time. And, and look at how it's described. Justice is far from us, and righteousness does not overtake us. He pairs justice and righteousness here in verse 9, and he pairs justice and salvation in verse 11. And he kind of frames these verses with those. And, and the idea is, is this a world that we want to live in where, where the, like good is good and bad is bad, and where, where justice happens, where there's no victimization and exploitation and racism and all those things that happen in our world. People of Israel were living in a time when it says that justice is far from us and righteousness, this reign of God over the world that's good and true and, and gives life, it's far from us. This world that they lived in would be characterized by what? Injustice. And unrighteousness. We hope for light, but instead they see darkness. They want the morning to come, and it's just dark. And in fact, it's worse than dark. It says that they're like blind men, that they're like those who have no eyes. Their eyes have been gouged out. There's, they cannot see. There is no hope. We grope about. We stumble. We're like dead men. And there's this bleak picture of where the nation of Israel in their rebellion against God had gotten themselves. And it it goes on to describe it. You know, all of us growl like bears, we moan like doves. 
Kind of like the only thing that, the only appropriate response to the situation that the nation of Israel had gotten them into was to growl in anger or mourn in sorrow. Just want to go on record, Rachel knows this, I hate doves. There was these doves that lived in these trees, like, right outside our bedroom window. And every morning, like, at four in the morning, like, whatever dove noise. Does anybody else know what I'm talking about? I hate those things. If it was legal, I would have blasted them out of the tree. But we cut those trees down. I sleep better. I don't know why, like, dove is a symbol of peace. No, it's a symbol of aggression. Like, I hate those things. But a little tangent. The only response that was, like, made sense in the nation of Israel was anger and sorrow. You see that all around us today, right? Just anger and sorrow everywhere we look. He goes on, verse 12. You know, the reason why this situation had become so dark is because of their the guilt. Look at it, it says, for, here's our reason, our transgressions are multiplied before you. Our sins testify against us. For our transgressions are with us and we know our iniquities. There's a bunch of different words used there. Transgression, sin, iniquity. Transgression speaks about, like, as a culture, the people of Israel were, like, knowingly violating the law of God. Their sins speak about all the individual things that they individually all did. And then it says, and their iniquities, their iniquities are well known to them. Like that iniquity is this idea of like the internal corruption of their hearts. Like they were in a time when the nation of Israel was in a dangerous spot. Like the the northern kingdom had been taken captive by Assyria. The king of Israel was trying to navigate all the political and military, or the king of Judah, all the political and military intrigue. There was, there was like this threat of invasion, but their biggest problem wasn't like all of the things outside of them. Their biggest problem was their transgressions, their sins, and their iniquities. And it says that they are always with them and that they know them. Like these people were weighed down with their guilt and their sin and their transgression, and it overflowed into their culture. Look what it says in verse 13. They are transgressing and denying the Lord, turning away from the gods, speaking oppression and revolt, conceiving and uttering from their heart lying words. Like in their hearts and in their speech and in what they do, there's like, what is it? Oppression, revolt, falsehood. Verse 14, injustice is turned back. And righteousness stands far away, and truth has stumbled in the street, and uprightness cannot enter. Isaiah is using this picture of a city. It's it's subtle here, but he's using this picture of a city. And it says, uh, justice is turned back. Like, justice wants to come into the city and establish, like, justice. And and they're like, nope. They get carted at the door of the city and turned back. That truth has stumbled in the street. Like truth has fallen and it's just being trampled by the masses. Righteousness stands far off. He's just looking at the city from afar. Doesn't even dare go near. Like this this picture of the people of Israel is a city that's just overrun with corruption. It even gets worse. Verse 15. Yes, truth is lacking And he who turns aside from evil makes himself a prey. Think about that from that. Think about that for a second. Truth is lacking. 
So what, what Isaiah is telling us is that, like, the word of God and, and the, through which he does his work and he rules over his people and he brings life is completely lacking. And it's gotten so bad that, that the status quo is so opposed to God that anyone who dares depart from the status quo of wickedness in Israel becomes prey. Like they single themselves out, they're seen as a threat, and they get hunted down. And you can't paint much of a, a much more bleak picture of society than what we have here in Isaiah 59. It's, it's overrun with injustice, unrighteousness, falsehood, and anyone who tries to turn aside from, from evil gets singled out, and it's a dangerous and risky proposition. You know, I think there's a lot of us here thinking like, wow, this feels an awful lot like today. You know, it's probably not hard for us to imagine a society like that because in, in a lot of ways it feels like, like culture is hurtling that way. Truth is trampled underfoot and justice is turned back. You know, the... There's this picture here of just how, like, of, of what our self-rule eventually takes us to. Humanity, like, by God's grace, there's this thing that God does called common grace, where he gives grace to everyone in one, at one level. And because of his common grace, sometimes, like, cultures and societies are a, a, a healthier place for, like, people and families to flourish in. Sometimes they're, like, a devastating place to flourish and, and, you know, cultures will rise and fall, cities and peoples and people groups will rise and fall. But ultimately, because, because our problem with humanity is in our hearts, it's our iniquities, our sins, and our, our rebellion, left to ourselves, that's where we all end up. That's the kind of world we make for ourselves when, when we insist on our self-rule. And we are completely unable to see the light. Because we're like those without eyes. It's this bleak picture of the world. But fortunately, the Lord doesn't just leave us there. And this is the, this is the second point this morning. Is the Lord gets dressed. Look at the second half of verse 15. Now the Lord saw... And it was displeasing in his sight that there was no justice. And he saw that there was no man. And he was astonished that there was no one to intercede. Then his own arm brought salvation to him. And his righteousness upheld him. And he put on righteousness like a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself with zeal as a mantle. According to their deeds, so he will repay wrath to his adversaries, recompense to his enemies, to the coastlands, he will make recompense. So we get this picture of the Lord where, like, there is no hope for humanity. There's no hope for the nation of Israel. They are completely unable to, to achieve, like, this life that they want. But then this, this but the Lord saw. And there's this, he's depicted in these really human terms, and it was displeasing in his sight. Like, I think we're supposed to feel some, like, passion here. Like, hmm, the Lord's kind of growling like a bear, right? He's angry about what's going on. He, he was astonished. Like, is there no one to intercede for these people? 
Is there no one who can kind of stand in that gap and like avert my judgment upon them? Is there no one? Is there no one that can save them? Is there no one that can bring righteousness in? Look what it says at the end of verse, at the last half of verse 16. Then his own arm brought salvation to him and his righteousness upheld him. Like the Lord God of Israel is the one who is strong enough to save. He doesn't need a savior. It is his arm that's strong enough to save. His arm brought salvation. His righteousness upheld him. He was able to stand in salvation and stand in righteousness because he didn't have to be weighed down in insecurity and and fear and wonder because he is perfectly righteous and he is perfectly capable to save. The Lord takes action when his people are completely helpless. Then it talks about him getting dressed. It's kind of a funny expression. That, like, um, that's why I put it as my second point. Because how often do you get to say the Lord gets dressed, you know? But when that, this idea of getting dressed and putting on clothing communicates a couple things. It communicates, uh, for one, it communicates identity. It tells us something about who God is. And it tells us something about what he's going to do. Tells us something about who God is, and it tells us something about what he's going to do. Like if you were to flip on your TV and you saw a person standing there wearing a football uniform, right? You would be able to understand like, oh, he's a Buckeye, and he's about to go play a football game, right? Look at how God's described as he gets dressed. He put on righteousness like a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. The Lord's not dressing for football. He's dressing for battle. He's putting on a helmet. He's putting on a breastplate. The helmet is his helmet of salvation. The breastplate is his own righteousness. He is coming to do battle with unrighteousness and oppression. And and he's coming to establish salvation and his righteousness. He's coming to do war. Then it says this. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing. Garments of vengeance. He's a God who is perfectly holy. He's a God who the nations rise up against. He's a God who's opposed, and yet he's a God who is not insecure. He is the perfect judge of the living and the dead. And one day he will come in vengeance. And then it says, and then it says, and he wrapped himself with zeal as with a mantle. Randy, when he preached a couple of weeks ago in Isaiah 9, he identified zeal as, as or, or defined it as great energy or enthusiasm in pursuit of a cause or an, or an objective. So here we have God depicted as dressing for war, who is in coming with vengeance and then wrapped all around in a cloak that, that is, uh, communicates his great energy or enthusiasm in pursuit of a cause or, obje- or an objective. Like God is going to come to bring salvation and righteousness on one hand and vengeance on the other hand. It's a message you see all through the Bible. That when, when, when God comes to this earth, he's going to do two things. He's going to rescue his people. And he's going to judge those who oppose him. From beginning to end, you see that. And here we have Isaiah depicting the Lord as the only one who could save his people is the only one who's righteous to judge and who's going to come and do it with 
great energy or enthusiasm in pursuit of that objective. Now, that should be good news. But like if you were the nation of Israel, right, who, are, who turn back justice, who embrace unrighteousness, who trample under the truth. Who, this isn't a depiction of Israel's enemies. This is a depiction of Israel herself. It's only good news if you're one of the people that God's coming to save, not one of the people that God's coming to like have vengeance upon. That's why the last verse of this section, verse, uh, oh, actually, I didn't even finish. Let me just start reading again at verse 18. According to their deeds, so he will repay. Like God will judge and he will judge perfectly. He knows all things, is what he's saying there. Wrath to his adversaries and recompense to his enemies. To the coastlands he will make recompense, which means there is nowhere you can run and there is nowhere you can hide. Go to the farthest island. So they will fear the name of the Lord from the west and his glory from the rising of the sun, for he will come like a rushing stream, which the wind of the Lord drives. He says from the east to the west. The rising sun is in the east to the west. Throughout the whole earth, like there will be a day when all the earth will fear because God will come like a flash flood in unstoppable power, clothed in vengeance. Verse 21. No, verse 20 is the key. And a redeemer will come to Zion and to those who turn from transgression to Jacob declares the Lord. The reason why verse 20 is so absolutely important for us is because it speaks of a redeemer. A redeemer in the Old Testament was someone, um, usually a relative, someone who bore the, the like, weight of somebody else's wrong on themselves. It was often used, it was like, it's, so the Old Testament law has this law of the Redeemer that if you had a kin, kinsman who was sold into slavery, that you were to go and buy them back out of slavery. That's the picture here, is that the, the people of Israel are enslaved to sin, they're enslaved to wickedness, they're enslaved to injustice, they're enslaved to like this lack of truth that they're in, but there will be a Redeemer to come. God comes not just in vengeance, he comes in salvation, and he comes as redeemer to those, verse 20, who turn from transgression in Jacob, declares the Lord. Like, God's grace and his redemption and his salvation and his righteousness, like, come upon those who turn from their wickedness and turn to him, because a redeemer is going to come, what Isaiah says. This, this debt that we all have that we could never repay will one day come and save us so that on that day of judgment, like, we can stand. You know, in, in uh, Ray Ortland makes this observation about this text I think is really helpful. He says, a, a final day is coming when God will appear on the human scene to settle every score with perfect justice, and there will be no hiding place, however remote. We should never give up, never give in. The apparent strength of evil is a colossal bluff. The present evil age is weak. It's getting old. It's passing away. 
Think about that for a second. Like if, 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 uh, if you would have just read verses 9 through 15, you would think to yourself like, oh, there is no hope whatsoever. This darkness is too total, too heavy, too pervasive. We have no hope. But because God sees, because God gets dressed, because God takes action, like the power of evil is just one big colossal bluff. Just love that expression. It's weak and it's passing away. So if you're here this morning and you're feeling like the, the weight of like that around you or the weight of that within you, which is even a bigger problem, know that because of what God is doing through his Redeemer, the power of sin, the, the thickness of the darkness, all of it is just a bluff. The Lord's going to come back one day and he is going to take care of it forever. So keep pursuing him. Like He's our only hope. And that's kind of what, what it tells us here in verse 21. Look at verse 21. This is where everything begins to change. He says, and as for me, this is my covenant with them, says the Lord. My spirit which is upon you and my words which I have put in your mouth shall not depart from your mouth, nor from the mouth of your offspring, nor from the mouth of your offspring's offspring, says the Lord, from now on and forever. It's interesting. I, there's, there's a lot here, and I, I just want to point out a few things, and I don't want you to miss it. First of all, if you're reading in your Bibles, notice that the formatting of verse 21 changes. Do you guys see that? If you, the way the, the text is formatted in your Bibles, if you have your phones, I don't know if it does it on your phones, but the reason why is because everything that we've been reading so far is poetry. In fact, we've been in this long section of poetry that began like partway through chapter 52, so we've been in poetry all the way up to this point, and then it breaks back into poetry in 60 verse 1, all the way up until chapter 65, I think it is, 60, yeah, I think it's 65. It's 13 chapters of poetry all around this verse, and verse 21 is in prose. It's not poetry. It's the only verse out of 13 chapters that's not in poetry. It's like, it's like we're in this giant musical Right? Got to get your head in the game, right? No? Should have brought basketball. Should be something cooler like Les Mis or something, right? Like, and, and suddenly, like, that we've been going with all of this poetry, and, like, the music has been dark and, and, and hopeless, and there's this picture of this warrior coming. And then all of a sudden, just, like, music just stops, and what we find out here in verse 21 is that God himself is speaking. So it's like the director of the whole show comes up out of the like orchestra pit, gets up on stage, doesn't want you to miss the point amidst all the artistry, right? He's just going to give it to us in plain language. There's been all this poetry surrounding these verses. And he's just going to come up out of the pit and he's going to like, he's going to like just give it in plain language. And he says, but as for me... This is my covenant with them, says the Lord. This is what I resolve to do. That's what a covenant is. It's something that God, by, the, by, by his character, swears that he's going to accomplish. This is my covenant with them. He's talking about Zion, the city of God, verse 20. But then he changes. Says the Lord, my spirit which is upon you. He changes his language from plural them to a singular you. 
And he's talking, he's talking about a, like in the Hebrew, like, like pronouns have like plural and singular, and, and we have it here too, them and you. So he, he begins talking about some other characters, That's as if there's some character like in the shadows at the edge of the stage that we can't fully see. And, he, and he's talking, hey, everybody, this is the covenant I'm going to make with them. And then he turns to the shadowy figure and he says, and this is, he says, this is, what, this is what I say to you. And my words which I have put in your mouth shall not depart out of your mouth or at the mouth of your offspring or at the mouth of your, mouth of your offspring's offsprings, says the Lord, from now on and forever. He says, this shadowy figure that has the spirit of the Lord and has the word of the Lord, like it's never going to depart from him or his descendants forever. Now, if we would have been studying through the book of Isaiah, like we typically study through books here and just going from start to finish, there's some clues in this text that would give us some, some information about who this person is, who this shadowy figure is that's kind of, that we don't see clearly. First thing it talks about is that he's somebody that has all sorts of offspring, right? The, the spirit and the word aren't going to depart from, your off, from you or from your offspring or from your offspring's offspring. Turn back with me to Isaiah 53. You know, in Isaiah, Isaiah 53 is... Let me just tell you a little bit about the book of Isaiah. The book of Isaiah it could really be broken up into three separate sections. It could be broken up into three main things. The first section of the book of Isaiah that Randy preached out of was, was um, the book of the king. It talks about this coming king, this descendant of David. And, and you guys know the verses where it says that, and you know, his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, and of the increase of his government and of peace there shall be no end, Right? And that he will establish it with justice and righteousness, all the things that we don't have. And the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish it. It's this this description, the hope of the people of Israel was focused on a king. Well, here in the passage that we're looking at this morning, um, like this hope of Israel is actually depicted in this anointed warrior that's going to come. That's what we've been looking at. He dresses in vengeance. Isaiah, the middle section depicts the hope of Israel not as a king or as a warrior, but as a servant. It's the most mysterious part of the, of the book. And in Isaiah 52 and 53, you have a really clear description of the servant. And in Isaiah 53, verse... I'm not even following my notes. Let me... Verse 7. This is speaking about the servant that God is going to send. And these verses might sound familiar to some of you that have grown up in the church. He was oppressed... And he was afflicted, yet did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter, and like a sheep that is silent before its shearers, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. As for her, his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due. His grave was assigned with wicked men, yet he was with a rich man in his death because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. If he would render himself as a guilt offering, he will see his offspring. He will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied by his knowledge. The righteous one, my servant, 
will justify the many as he will bear their iniquities. There is a lot in, those, in that passage, and the work of Jesus Christ like perfectly fulfilled all of those things. But, but look at some of those descriptions, right? He's the righteous one. And he's the one that's going to justify many. Justify means to declare you righteous as he bears their iniquities. This one who's going to have many offspring is the, is the redeemer that was going to come and offer himself up. That's why in the Jewish mind, it's such a mystery. He's going to offer himself up to bear their iniquities. He's going to offer himself as a guilt offering. He was going to pour himself out to death. This shadowy figure off the stage who the Spirit of God is upon and whom the Word of God is with and, and who is going to have countless descendants is the one who was killed. And yet, because he bore iniquities, saw his own offspring. We get this picture that, that this Redeemer that's going to come in Isaiah 59 is Jesus himself, the servant of God, the king of all nations, the avenging warrior who's anointed by the Spirit. You see it over in chapter 61. Flip over to Isaiah 61. This is immediately after it. And the reason why this is important is as you look at how Jesus is described and how this, this, this king and this servant and this warrior is described, it helps us recognize who Jesus is. And, and it says in chapter 59, verse 21, that his spirit is upon him. Verse 21. And if you turn over to chapter 61, verse 1, I'm not going to read it out of 61, verse 1, but... Just for, I'm going to read it out of Luke chapter 4 because Jesus quotes from Isaiah 61 verses 1 and 2 in, in Luke chapter 4 and listen to what happens. Luke chapter 4 verses 16 through 21. And he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. And he unrolled the scroll and he found the place where it was written. And here it is. The spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor, he has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And all the eyes in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Think about that for a moment. Jesus walks in, grabs the Bible off the shelf, pulls open his smartphone, flips over to Isaiah. This king that you've been hoping for, that's going to bring in everlasting righteousness. This servant that's going to bear your iniquities. And create children from every tribe and nation and people and tongue. This warrior that's going to come and make everything right. And do away with evil forever. And establish righteousness. Jesus, Jesus says, guess, guess who that is? Today. This is fulfilled in your hearing. Jewish people weren't all that cool about that. They were like, what? This is just Joseph's kid. And then he said something else. He said, well, it was... Gentile people that believed the message of the Old Testament, so I'm not surprised you guys don't believe. And then, and then I'm paraphrasing here. And then they tried to throw him off a cliff. So Jesus starts off like well-received. 
But the reality is this. Jesus is the one who, that's standing on the side of the stage in Isaiah's day. And, and what we celebrated last week, what we celebrated as we partook of the, of the Lord's Supper, it's the plan of God through the ages. That's what Brian told us. He's the one that's going to come and make all things right. And look what, look what happens. This is, you know, after it all changes, we break back into, into poetry. We break back into song. I won't sing it for you. Starting in verse 60, uh, chapter 60, verse 1. Arise and shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness will cover the earth, and deep darkness all peoples. But the Lord will rise upon you, and his glory will appear upon you. And nations will come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. Lift up your eyes round about and see. They all gather together. They come to you. Your sons will come from afar, and your daughters will be carried in the arms. Then you will see and be radiant, and your heart will thrill and rejoice because of the abundance of the sea will be turned to you. The wealth of the nations will come to you. A multitude of camels will cover you. The young camels of Midian and Ephah and those from Sheba will come. They will bring gold and frankincense and will bear good news of the praises of the Lord. Think about how the tone just changed. Like it's all death, destruction, war, and like killing, right? And this Redeemer comes, the one upon whom the Spirit of God and the Word of God rests. And, and the one who gives the Spirit and the Word to all of his descendants. And the tone completely changes. We have, arise and shine, for your light has come. And, and, and it says, the glory of the Lord will appear upon you. Now, what happens here in chapter 60 is he, he goes back to talking about the city Zion because what you see in the Hebrew is that, it, is that the pronouns now become like feminine pronouns again. The, Zion was referred to as like in, in the feminine in the Hebrew Bible. So he's going from a masculine singular, singular in, at the end of, of chapter 59 to like this feminine you talking about the city Mount Zion from chapter 50, I mean from verse 20. A redeemer will come to Zion. He's talking about the assembly of God's people, the city of of the redeemed. And arise and shine, for your light has come. And then you saw the golden frankincense reference. You see that in there? I wouldn't be burned at the stake for this. But my, like, biblical, like, intuition from my years of study is, like, I I never really quite understood, like, what the whole deal with the wise men was. But what did they do? They came from the east, and they brought gold and frankincense and myrrh. I think they're just this like, little foreshadowing of this day that Isaiah prophesies, like, and, and God tipping his hand. Like when the wise men show up, like kings from another nation who came to worship the Messiah, it's foreshadowing this day that's going to come when all nations will bring their glory into him. And it, in fact, that's John quotes this section Isaiah 60 in the book of Revelation in Revelation 21 when he talks about the new Jerusalem and the new heavens and the new earth and how all the nations will bring the best of all that they have to offer in worship to the Lord that's what God has resolved to do 
He is bringing all things under like the lordship of Jesus Christ. He is, he is restoring all things to the way they're supposed to be. He is granting all of us who place our faith in him like righteousness and his spirit and his word. That's God's resolution through every year. Now, I need to wrap this up, but let me just speak about a couple like points of application. Like, first of all, I don't want you to miss this. In Isaiah 60, this joy that he's talking about is, is he's talking about the city, that you is the city. It's not you, like Kenny, or you, Steve. It's you, the assembly of God's people. Like, God is working through his spirit and his word. We see that in verse 21. My spirit is upon you, and my words, which will be out in your mouth, will spread. Like, God does his work through his, his spirit, like, by the spirit. God's work is done in this world by the spirit of God, through the word of God, as it does its work in the people of God. You know, if you want to align your life with what really matters, and if you want to align your life with what God's doing, you have to understand that what the Spirit of God and the Word of God are doing in this world is creating a people, is building His church. It's not just saving a bunch of individuals who, who just kind of do their own thing and every once in a while come and get filled up and then like leave and go do their own thing. He's building a people, He's building a city. You know, the the uh, Heidelberg Catechism says this about God's work through his spirit and his word. And it was written in 15, I think it's on there, 1563. I believe that the Son of God through his spirit and word out of the entire human race from the beginning of this world to its end gathers, protects, and preserves for himself a community chosen for eternal life and united in true faith. And of this community, I am and always will be a living member. Not great at math, but I think that's 460 years ago that was written. A couple hundred years before our nation even existed. And it's just as much true today as it was then. God, by his word and his spirit, out of the entire human race, is building up. He, he gathers, protects, and preserves for himself a community chosen for eternal life and united in the true faith. And of this community, we are all living members. So one thing I just want to challenge you as we enter into 2020, is it three? 2023? Not great with calendars. Um, don't mock me. We all have our things. I'll share yours next week, Gene. Um, just kidding. You're safe here. Yeah. So if, if, you want, if you want your life to be aligned, if, if we really believe these words that I've been reading and speaking to you, if you really believe that God through history has made promise after promise after promise and his character has been proven faithful and true over and over and over again and that God's ways are like good and righteous and just, if we really believe that, one of the things that the scriptures teach us, and it's showing it right here, is that he's building a people for himself by his word and the spirit, like in this world right now today. He didn't give up in the nation of Israel in their dark day, and he hasn't given, us, given up on us 
today. And I know that because we're still here. And his word and his spirit is continuing to do work. And so I just want to challenge you, like as you reflect on this coming year of what you want God to do, it should involve like how can I like let God's word do its work in me? Dave Helm, uh, a friend, mentor kind of, of mine says, God does his work through his word in a world gone awry. Like, if your heart has gone awry or if this world has gone awry, like, first and foremost, like, we as a people need to be committed to his word and his spirit. You should be asking yourself, how can I make God's word, like, have a greater impact on my life? And how can I shine that light? What does it say in Isaiah 60? To all the nations who will come to your light. Because it says the glory of God will reside upon us, upon you as the city. Like God wants to demonstrate his glory here at Creekside to the people in McMinnville, to your neighbors and your classmates and your friends, your family members. If you want to get on board with something that matters, get on board with what God's doing because he's bringing it to a glorious conclusion in his son, Jesus Christ. Brian, you can come up. And the second thing I just want to challenge you with this morning is that I don't want you to miss the, 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 the way the word was like the truth was described in chapter 59 and the way it's described in, in verse 21. You know, truth was lacking. Truth is trampled in the street. And yet there's this people upon whom God's word and his spirit dwell. In, in that earlier section of Isaiah 59, there anybody that turned from wickedness and tried to follow the Lord, which would be to follow in the truth, makes himself out to be prey. I mean, this is not a surprise to any of us either, but like Christians and churches all over the world today, or I mean, not all over the world. <laughs> Sorry, there's people way more faithful than we are I mean, in other parts of the world. All over America today are losing their nerve. And they're losing their nerve as the fact that, that God really is true. And, and the very church who's supposed to be the pillar in support of the truth is just letting it be trampled under the streets. And so you young people, like, don't buy the bluff. Right? Like, God's word is the thing that's going to stand and be true, and he's doing his work through his word in a world gone awry. And, and of all moments in our society, this is not the time to, like, falter on it. So my challenge to, to all of us is this challenge to, to purpose, that we would invest ourselves in the work that God's doing as he builds this city for himself. I, I challenge you to resolve that we remain faithful to God's word you know, by walking in the spirit, doing what the spirit's doing, and that we'd be people filled with hope because like, as bad as things get, like God is never out of control. God's never like wringing his hands. When he decides to get up and take action, he takes action, and it's carried through. He comes like a flash flood, and no one can stop him. So purpose, resolve, and hope. Brian, why don't you close this? I'll close this in prayer. Let me just read out of the Isaiah, the section of the king, the, the passage that I just referred to in my sermon. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace. 
on the throne of David and over his kingdom to, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. Let's pray. Father, I just thank you for your eternal plan, and I thank you that you're a God who, at the heart of who you are, um, is gracious and loving and merciful, and, and that the, the gospel that we believe flows out of all of those things, that you take helpless people that are blind and groping in the darkness and, and w- under the weight of our iniquity, and you redeem and save us and give us your word and your spirit to, to accomplish your work in this world. And Father, I just ask that we would allow your work to transform our hearts, that we would, that we would allow it to give us purpose in this world, and that we would, that we would give ourselves in 2023 to, to what really matters. Thank you for Jesus Christ who, who saves us and delivers us and anoints us. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.